Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey guys, you ever wonder what Phil and I wear while we podcast? You can find out if you join our Patreon. We'll also be talking about the films of 1989, but that's definitely less important than seeing our Zoom backgrounds, our headphone choices, and our sweatshirts. It's true. It's true. You'll get to see all the various pieces of artwork that I have framed on my office wall, and you can see Kenny's garden, sort of. So that's something. That's exciting. It's a hanging garden. It's a hanging garden. Uh, But perhaps more important than anything, uh, we are doing this Patreon to cover the best films of 1989. Uh, Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2 with amazing guests like Tom Meissen, Liz Hanna, Joanna Robinson, Brian Cogman, Chuck Hayward. You can sign up at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. And for $5, you'll get access to all the audio of these fantastic episodes. For a few bucks more, you'll get video as well of our 99 and 89 episodes. And perhaps, most importantly, you'll be supporting us uh, so we can just keep making podcast content for you guys. Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999. I'm your host, Phil Iscove. And with me today is Scott Casuccio, motions, motion graphics artist, a musician. He has a, uh, it's not a band, but what would you call it? Some sort of a... a... Mm, I guess you'd call it like a, a recording project where I don't sure. have to use my real name. Uh, right. Uh, it's, it's called uh, Letters End. It's on all streaming sites. It's on Bandcamp as well. I highly, highly recommend everybody check it out. It is, and I'm not just saying this because I've known Scott for over 20 years and he's a good friend, but it is tremendous music that everybody should check out. So please do that. Um, he's also here because when I 
came to the conclusion that I wanted to do an episode on The Fragile, um, there was really no one else that I could imagine talking to about Nine Inch Nails for uh, at least 90 minutes, uh, is Scott. And because I feel like, um, I mean, they're one of your favorite bands, I'm assuming. I'm going to put that in. It's, they're up there. You're a fan. Let's just say that. But I think that... Um, <laughs> they're a band I associate with you, and I say that with with uh, with obviously nothing but love. But um, also considering this this musical project of yours, Letters End, which obviously I recently listened to, um, it feels like the way that Trent Reznor approaches music is similar in some ways to the way that you approach music. Um, that, that that there's sort of this this deconstructive kind of component, this idea of sort of manipulating noises, instruments, what have you, and sort of bending things to your will musically in some way or another. Um, is that a completely insane thing to say, or do you think that that's an accurate? No, I mean, I think, so I think with, with my own music, where I'm at right now is the struggle between the fact that I write everything on like an acoustic guitar primarily, uh, mm -hmm. but then with like half of the stuff I've released so far, which is a really small output, I've been working a lot on, you know, putting out maybe a full album, hopefully early in the in the coming year. But um, you know, when I when I just leave it, when I leave the songs alone and keep them stripped back, then it's more akin to like traditional singer songwriter type stuff. Sure. <clears throat> um, but when I spend more time on it, which like the first couple of songs I put out, d definitely there's this inclination. And I started recording music on my computer in like in the late nineties using um, software that like doesn't even really exist anymore. Uh, and that, I mean, Nine Inch Nails was definitely a huge influence on, on that because when it came to more electronic stuff at the time, that was my main sort of reference point was Nine Inch Nails and, you know, like a bit of Depeche Mode and a bit of other industrial and, you know, that kind of early new wave stuff as well. Um, <clears throat> but, I mean, they were a really strong influence, especially if you're talking about, like, the early, mid-90s. And I find that when I've worked on some of my stuff now, like, like there's a tendency to to look for those sounds, to have that that distorted grungy things falling apart sort of sound where uh and and i've worked some of that in and I, I put out like one on like a whim like a sort of like a like a gothy uh leonard cohen cover um when i had like a few hours and i was like i'm just gonna do this as though it was like yeah like like a like an early 80s sure. gothy sort of thing and uh that definitely scratched a bit of that itch so i'm gonna i'm gonna ask a potentially stupid question now um <clears throat> before we go back and talk a little bit about 1999 but i i, I want to sort of so i just did an episode on uh with a, with a friend of mine pete on moby's play which was a very big album in 1999 um and i guess my question to you is electronic music you know a lot more about it than me or at least sort of it's it's nascent kind of it's it's growth throughout sort of musical history. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that the reason I bring up Moby is because it does feel like it was a big kind of fulcrum point for electronic music to a certain degree in terms of the mainstream, in terms of it breaking through. Now, he's obviously much more dance oriented and I'm not 
really suggesting that Trent Reznor and Moby have a whole lot in common, other Probably than David not. Bowie. Um, <laughs> that, but that I do has a lot of people together, yeah. Right. Yeah. But I, my, my question is more about um, sort of fundamentally electronic manipulation of music and how mm -hmm. it's advanced and changed and how these two guys in their own very different ways really pushed electronic music into very different directions. Like to say that Nine Inch Nails is a band in its own way feels a little disingenuous since it's really a Trent Reznor project. And yeah. there are a bunch of members and I'm certainly not going to go through the revolving door of people that were part of this band because it's not really yeah. worth it as talented as all those people very well might be yeah. um it, it feels like you know like I, i'm always brought back to the image of trent reznor destroying a keyboard on stage like that to mm -hmm. me feels like the the image of the band right it's someone who is trying to literally destroy music yeah it was it was violent for sure those i mean especially those like early nineties, mid nineties shows. Um, I was not allowed to go to see Nine Inch Nails and Bowie when they toured in like oh, 96 or something like that. I think it was mm -hmm. um, because my brother, my oldest brother who got me into Nine Inch Nails when I was like really young, um, <clears throat> he had his shoulder dislocated in a mosh pit at a Nine Inch Nails show in like 93 or 94. <laughs> and so to my mom, that meant, uh, no, there's no chance you're going to that. And I was, you know, living in like the suburbs of Toronto at the time. It wasn't the kind of thing where it was just like, you know, I'm going to walk down the street and, and go see them. It's like, it was yeah. more of a, more of a to do. Um, so yeah, I never actually like saw them in those. Sort of, yeah. yeah. In, in their, I'd say they're most essential. Period. Yeah, I mean, I've I've only seen them once. Uh, I, I was I was uh, um, I was given a gift uh, by an agent at UTA many years ago um, for helping him get his parents into some sort of talk show or something like that in the in the mm -hmm. audience. Because yeah. uh, I was working in the alternative department at the time, and he kindly uh, gave me two very good tickets to see Nine Inch Nails at the Hollywood Bowl, um, which was an incredible show. Uh, you know, we should talk a little bit as well about sort of the there's a there's a very strong visual component to, oh, yeah. to Nine Inch Nails as well, not just in terms of uh, their touring and their concerts, but just you know, Trent is very specific about the way that the band. Uh, is put out into the world. Uh, their merchandise, oh, everything sure. is very, very specific. I mean, down to the. I mean, like w when I first started listening to them, the um, even the the cataloging of mm -hmm. things, which you know, like the Halo One, Halo Two, yeah. all of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, it also like really reminded me of the way Factory Records used to, like Faco One and Faco Two. Like these became like these. Um, you almost wanted to like collect all of these different things because there was all like the the early singles from Pretty Hate Machine and mm -hmm. and then the um, you know all like the the videos that were like sort of bootlegs but sort of official like that you couldn't really see mm -hmm. um, anywhere else and all of that came down to this this image and this um, you know it was it was kind of like you were in on this secret and mm -hmm. because it was so different from the mainstream at the time, even though, I mean, obviously Downward Spiral was a massive, massive hit. Um, just before that and just after that, like I think it took a while for it to really seep into the mainstream, but it was this, it had this underground sort of um, illicit thing, like component mm -hmm. to it that was 
you know, for a really, for a young guy at the time was, was very attractive, especially just getting into that scene more and more. Well, it feels like, you know, one of the main sort of, it, it's, it, it's no surprise that Trent Reznor and David Fincher work together a lot. They both sort of, um, there's a currency to contraband with them. This idea mm-hmm. of you're getting something you shouldn't, you're seeing something you shouldn't, you're breaking the rules by listening to our music or watching our movies or whatever the case might be. Um, and that obviously was catnip in the 90s when you know, you had obviously the grunge movement, you had the sort of anti-establishmentarianism that was really kind of seeping into, um, I mean, had always been there when it comes to teens and people in their early 20s and what have you, but they were really lighting a fire under these people. Um, and I don't say these people in a derogatory sense, just, you know, this idea of of feeling uh, disconnected that, I mean, we all go through adolescence and we all go through this time when we're just unsure of who we want to be in the world. And mm-hmm. I mean, some might argue that, you know, <laughs> Trent still might not be exactly where he wants to be, but I think that he, you know, certainly grappled with a lot of um, inner angst and turmoil that similar to a Kurt Cobain or what have you tapped or hit a vein for a large swath of people in uh, around the world. Um, So in 99, you, you are, you're at Ryerson with me. (laughs) So, um, but are you sort of, are you, eagerly anticipating this album as much as it felt like everybody else was i mean this was a a a seven years between i believe is it seven or five years it's five i think it's five. five years between that and the downward spiral yeah um but there was obviously a lot he he did a lot in between that yeah that weren't that wasn't like a, a you know proper album um, yeah i'm you know what i i know i i probably bought it the day it came out sure uh, and i was probably super like, yeah. excited. I, like I remember a few moments, you know, like in that in the '90s where it was like albums coming out was like the mm-hmm. biggest deal. Like I remember, and I'm sure you can relate to this when when Melancholy came out. Like I remember on right, CFNY, yeah. which was the like the Toronto mm-hmm. alternative music station. Yep. Um, I remember them playing like this little snippet of Bullet with Butterfly Wings yep. on like an ad for the album, and like listening to that recorded snippet because that was like all you could get of it at the time. Yep. Like it was a very much more innocent time. Um, by the time 99 comes around though, like being at Ryerson, being in, in university for a year at that mm-hmm. point, cause this came out in like, I think September. Um, yeah. Yeah. September, October, something like that. Yeah. You're, you know, you become exposed to like in, in high school, I was in like sort of a bubble in terms of my musical taste. Like there was mm-hmm. not many people who, you know, listen to what I listen to. And uh, when you get to, when you get to university, obviously that opens up and, you know, we're in like an, essentially like an art school, like you guys were all in film. Mm -hmm. Jan and I were in, you know, new media studying how to be who knows what. uh, Uh, Motion graphics artists, I think. No, no, we were (laughs) were learning how to be, uh, and there's actually a tie-in to the actual, to the Nine Inch Nails tour that followed the Fragile, but you know, we were learning how to be like installation artists and video artists and, and stuff that no one should ever try to make a living at. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we, but all of a sudden, like, you know, I'm friends yeah. with you and with Jan and with Will, with Phil or with Simon. And, mm-hmm. you know, you start meeting people who have, who share some of your music taste, yeah. but then who have their whole, this whole other bunch of music totally. that you've never heard of and you've got stuff that they've never heard. And so you start to expand. So, 
the stuff that you were listening to before that. Mm-hmm. And especially with that kind of gap between downward spiral, uh, it probably fell a little bit off my radar to, to a point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was obviously like super excited when it came out. And- well, it's, I mean, you're, you're not alone in the sense that it seemed like everyone was um, eagerly anticipating the follow-up to Downward Spiral. Five years is a very long time between albums. And to your point, there's a whole lot of things that are going to fill the vacuum. You know, I think that th- this is, you know, having worked in an agency, there's, there's nothing worse than going away for too long because then all of a sudden you're, you're forgotten about and, and you have to sort of work your way back in and, and fight for relevancy. Um, and the five years that, that, uh, that Nine Inch Nails went away, a lot of things happened in the music industry that, that greatly oh, yeah. shifted things. But I want to talk about something. You mentioned melancholy, which I think is a really interesting touchstone because I think that um, the, the idea of the double album, yeah. the idea of, of two discs of music or, or at least enough music that it doesn't fit on one side, I guess, or on, on, you know, one, one album, um, is, uh, rarefied air. You know what I mean? Generally speaking, um, the, the level of success required in order to, to, uh, validate putting out a a double album is, you Mm -hmm. know, is, is pretty rare. Um, I would also say too, that some albums should be double albums and some albums should be two albums. Um, Trent has subsequently said that he kind of wished that he split the fragile into two albums a la uh, Kid A and Amnesiac or something yeah. along those lines. Um, <clears throat> and I, and I, I, I tend to agree with him a little bit. It's, it's a lot to digest. It's, um, long. Yeah. it's fucking long. It's, it's a, it's a 103 minutes. I mean, that, that is a, that is a long, uh, long hour. <clears throat> I think it's a hundred. I think it's 103 minutes. It's something along those lines. It's but, an hour um, and 44 minutes. Yeah, so that works out to about 103 minutes. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I, I think that it's um, it's a dare of an album in its own way, right? Like, it's basically saying, you know, I want you to spend a, a, a large amount of time inside my head as I deal with any number of uh, mental issues, which we'll talk about as we get deeper into this. But mm-hmm. I bring this up because I, I sort of say, like, you know, Melancholy is an example of like, that's a, that's a quote unquote worthy double album. I think that a lot of people, I love that album. It holds up for me, <clears throat> The Wall, any number of other great sort of magnum opuses, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, this to me is, is sort of a bit of both worlds. I think that if you sit down with a pair of headphones and lie on your couch or whatever and listen to this in sequence it's a tremendous journey. It's just a hard one to go on. And I think that that's why he feels like maybe he should have broken it up. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know if there's any double album out there besides, I mean, even like London Calling, there's yeah. like one track on that I'll skip. But I mean, Melancholy for sure. There's a few tracks that even at the time mm-hmm. I didn't listen to. Yep. Like okay. there's only so much of like a nine minute, I think it was XYZ was the name of the track. It was just like, <laughs> Like, I, I I get it, but I don't need to listen to this again. Yeah, I hear that. And, um, and like the fragile, I realized that like, I mean, I, I I'm sure I listened to it a, a good number of times at the time, but I, it didn't stick with me. And I think that's because it it should have been parceled out. And I think some of it, you know, could have been cut entirely. Sure. Uh, it's it's definitely two different concepts i i mean there, there's two mm-hmm. 
really main threads that it follows. And one is that is the, the more instrumental um, stuff, which I think resonates now better than the other side, which is the, I mean, it's, there's a lot of like poppy sort of hooks on yep. their, on their vote, on the more vocal forward tracks, um, the mm-hmm. singles, and then a couple other ones that, I don't think are as successful as the instrumental stuff on this album. Uh, yeah, I it, it's, I mean, it, it will surprise no one that that this album has it feels a little bipolar at times, right? Like it it does definitely feel as though it's vacillating between a bunch of different ideas. It's it it feels like, I mean, it feels like the person that was making it, which is a person who is unsure how to follow up something that was so unbelievably successful. Um, That success has led him to, to question if he's even any good at this. Like, is this, is this what he wants to be doing? Um, And then, and then on top of this, um, the money and then the drugs. So like all of this and the drinking, I imagine as well. So like all the exhaustion of touring and stuff like that and the exhaustion. Right. So it's like, it's you, you, it feels like a, it, it feels like a maelstrom of, um, of sort of emotional uh, insecurity and frustration and depression and angst. Like it's, it's all there. Um, it's, it's, it's really powerful, but you mentioned the, 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 the instrumental stuff, which I mean, obviously Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross now are, are hugely successful composers. Yeah. Um, you know, just recently I just, I just was watched soul um, where it's a beautiful score, not a score that, that I would, yeah would have ever imagined that Disney Pixar would, would have a Trent Reznor Atticus Ross score. And here we are. So what, what does it sound like? Is it because I mean, we, they did the score for Mank, which I mean, you would not have heard no. that and said, Oh, that's Trent Reznor. Correct. Whereas I mean, social network or Watchmen, like you hear that and it's like, this is clearly yeah. Trent Reznor. Yeah. This, I mean, I would, I would say that, I mean, it, it's, it primarily is the score to, and this gives nothing away, but to the afterlife, which again, right. not, 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 the yeah. not the jazz stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, they get into their drones, they get into their kind of bleeps and bloops. And mm-hmm. at the same time, I mean, and, and this is something I, I kind of want to talk about with Trent too. The guy knows how to fucking do a hook. Like he knows how to make a pop For song. Sure. For sure. So there's definitely that infused into soul as well of just sort of like the levity and the poppiness and the, the necessary kind of like up that's necessary for a fucking Disney Pixar film. Um, it's really beautiful. I can't wait for you to see the film just in general, but also for you to hear the music. But the instrumental stuff on Fragile is this, and you'll know better than I do, is this the first time that Trent is dipping his toe into instrumental waters or has he done that before? Okay. Definitely. I mean, definitely not on, on, I mean, if you can't, I mean, when you talk about like remixes and stuff like that, a lot of the remixes he did for downward spiral suffer. And even there, there is one pure instrumental track on downward spiral without any vocals at all, which is, has always been one of my favorite songs on that, um, a warm place, which is very much, very much sounds like, early like like Brian Eno's um sort of pop stuff it has that sort of sound to it um and then with remixes there's definitely been huge instrumental swaths and at the end of the downward spiral there's you know like eraser and and stuff like those tracks that are right more spaced out not really heavy on on vocals um 
I mean, it does feel like, you know, so much of Trent Reznor's work feels like a mood, right? Like it, it feels like a uh, he, he's it's a lot of tone poems in its own way. And I, I don't say that, obviously, in a, in a, in a negative sense. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just he's. And again, it's not a surprise that he works with someone like David Lynch, who goes out of his way to conjure moments that make you feel something. Yeah. Now, what you're feeling is almost irrelevant to him in some way or another. He just wants to elicit an emotion. And, and you know, his stuff is is sort of this visceral, dreamlike stuff. Yeah. Um, so the, the marriage of those two makes total sense to me as well. And, but, and speaking of instrumentals and... David Lynch. And, you know, like we, we both watched that song exploder episode where he, you know, specifically mentions that he wanted to do what David Lynch was doing with, I mean, David Lynch as a sound designer is, I mean, so essential obviously to his work and is uh, so unnerving. (laughs) Oh, it's, I mean, it's why you can have a shot of a staircase in Twin Peaks and be so upset. You know, you like you're no, you're looking at like a, an empty living room, and you're like, oh my god, something horrible is going to happen. And it's just this needling that he does with these quiet, like undertones, these little things just bubbling up. Um, and so, the instrumental track on the Lost Highway soundtrack, uh, "Driver Down," I think it's called, is again an instrumental track that it's not easy to have a like a, a like an instrumental track that has like a pop hook to it. Mm-hmm. Like that used to be way more common, obviously in like the fifties with like the ventures and, and link Ray sure. and stuff like that, where you had these, these instrumental tracks that almost had like, they had like a hook that you wanted to listen to. Like it was a catchy chorus mm-hmm. and, and Trent Reznor can definitely do that. Um, mm-hmm. Like that instrumental track on lost highway, which I think is probably the best thing he did in between. Like it's important to note that as something in between downward spiral and the fragile is him. I guess he's the producer on that, but he also did. You know, he had the perfect drug from that and the video for that, and then uh, the work he did on the soundtrack itself, which is for me like definitely my favorite movie soundtrack, uh, and hugely impactful. I mean, like that opening David Bowie song is like so iconic. Uh, you've got an amazing Lou Reed song on there. You've got the Marilyn Manson stuff. Yeah. Um, and there's a Smashing Pumpkin song I love on there yeah, too, Smashing I, Pumpkin, yeah. which is again heavily featured in in the movie as mm-hmm. well. Um, that was a, that was like a big deal as well, I think. I think but, it's really uh, interesting what you're. I think it's worth noting, you know, the 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 work of Lynch and and uh, and Trent together. It, it really does feel like there's this sort of they both sort of um, there's this confluence of nature and technology. You know, this this very kind of strange... I mean, there's lots of... I feel like Lynch has a lot of uh, wind and like just various things from nature that are very mm-hmm. unsettling. It's like filtering nature through a computer well, in some it's way also, that I see. It's, it's... I mean, it's... Nine Inch Nails was always labeled, especially with, with like after Pretty Hate Machine, which is a pretty like synth poppy album. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, they fell into the industrial music. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's a stretch to call David Lynch, especially like Eraserhead and an industrial filmmaker. I mean, mm-hmm. that those landscapes of Philadelphia, I mean, that like that's where the sound comes from. Yeah. Like, um, you know, like the opening credits of Twin Peaks with the with the lumber mill, you know, and like um, 
this this gritty uh, unkempt sort of look i mean that that falls right into into nine inch nails even like their visual aesthetic which mm-hmm. uh like for the for the albums for the the videos he did for like the uh, i don't know if you've ever have you ever watched like the happiness and slavery videos and stuff from ones, no. yeah i mean you would not uh like it i would say <laughs> um it was cool. it was the thing that like Thanks. you couldn't you couldn't watch you had to get like a bootleg of it and i think they did okay. officially release it but it was like you know it was like torture porn like it right. was like literally a guy who was a performance artist like getting tortured by machines and by and it was you know that was even the in the video for um, down in it was like looked like a snuff film like there was always this gritty evil uh to his stuff yeah there's there's definitely i mean evil's a good a good word i think to some degree because i feel like it's 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 all encompassing it's it's darkness it's this idea of of um you know what we fear i guess you know what i mean and and i and i don't mean it in sort of the the blumhouse kind of way and i don't hate the blumhouse movies but like I, I don't. I don't necessarily feel like David Lynch or Trent Reznor are are making horror. You know what I mean? Like they're not looking to to frighten you necessarily. I think they're trying to kind of show you the darkness that really exists in the world and to mm-hmm. like come face to face with it and fucking deal with it, um, as opposed to people that are like something jumping out at you and trying to scare you. Like I don't. I think those are two very different things. Yeah. I mean, like the the guy behind or the the person behind the winkies and in, in Mulholland drive oh, definitely oh. is, is a bit of a jump scare and it's, it's horrible. It there, there are some jump scares in, in lost highway in, in a way, but sure. the real, like sure. the more, the menace and the evil in like twin peaks, you know, with Bob, I mean, really it just comes down to the, the whole story. And that is just something that happens in real life and it's horrible and unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think the, the banality of evil, like mm-hmm. just how, how commonplace some of these things are is mm-hmm. I don't think, yeah, they're not looking for these like supernatural, like, well, you, you these just, are just this is the evil that exists in general, like all over. The you place. just said the word that I was thinking. I don't, when I think of nine inch nails, there's nothing supernatural about them. No. Um, and I would even, I would even argue that David Lynch isn't a supernatural filmmaker. Mm-hmm. I think that he's existing in, perhaps he's existing in a, in a dream space and a nightmare space, but I don't think that it's anything that he feels doesn't quote unquote exist in this world. Um, mm-hmm. where, which is terrifying, but, uh, <laughs> but I, but I think that there's, I, I, this, it's a really interesting marriage and it's also, you know, the, the, the David Bowie nine inch nails marriage is also an interesting one because I think that David Bowie also exists in this fantasy type experience, you know, again, not supernatural per se, but just sort of um, alternate university, if that makes any yeah. sense. Like I, I think that, that them getting into bed together, you know, I, I'm sure, I'm sure you remember this. I certainly do because it was, kind of when David Bowie reemerged a little bit, you know what I mean? In the eighties, he was sort of in this, you know, he, he had some big hits, yeah. but then he kind of just disappeared a little bit. And as the chameleon that he is comes resurfaces as this sort of industrial basin, uh, basin drums artist um, with Trent Reznor. Uh, what did you think of that period in his career and, and how they sort of spoke to each other? I mean, well, I was never 
the biggest Bowie fan. Like I knew, I mean, I knew his stuff from the seventies. Sure. Um, I knew ashes to ashes. I, and I, you know, like you knew all, everyone knows the singles and stuff like that, but I never really, yeah. Let's dance. (laughs) I I never listened to those albums. Um, It was, I think it was as surprising to me as to anyone though, when like, I'm afraid of Americans and stuff like that. Like that was, Mm -hmm. it was a huge song. I mean, Mm -hmm. not huge in the way that like, you know, like a pop star gets huge, but it was, it was on, you know, the video was on all the time and it was his biggest hit and probably, you know, probably seven or 10 years, maybe something like that. Uh, And yeah, I mean, it catapulted him back into relevance, but not in like a, in the kind of the same way that like, the the Pearl Jam Neil Young thing like yeah. Sonic Youth yeah. and Pearl Jam and how these like these grunge artists quote unquote like not that Sonic Youth was grunge but you know they were part of they yeah. were precursors to that scene brought him back into the into the spotlight uh, yep. and gave him a resurgence like Bowie kind of follows on the the industrial edge and really when it comes to like mainstream industrial music it was really just Nine Inch Nails like no one else got the same level of exposure like ministry was like kind of big mm-hmm. um and like kmfdm you would see their videos on on much music sometimes but like it was really nine inch nails that well and then you had, had trent producing there. and you had trent producing stuff at a certain point too right so he starts oh, yeah. producing and Marilyn, Marilyn manson. manson and that kind of stuff yeah. but um, then it, it falls i mean and this kind of is you know thinking what music was like in 99 i think after in the same way that after Nirvana hit it big and like all these labels tried to find the next Nirvana and you signed and they signed some legitimately great artists. Um, but then they also catapulted these like horrible artists into the mainstream. Well, I think, and I don't know if this is because of Marilyn Manson and Nine Inch Nails, but like 99 is horrible for mainstream rock and roll in that to me. And I think this is, you're not Probably. a fan of Freak on a Leash, Scott? I thought that was like your favorite song. I mean, you've got you've got Corn, you've got Limp Bizkit, you've got Kid Rock with Ba with the Ba. Like this is '99 stuff, and it is. It, it is. I think my initial reaction to some of the Fragile was, "Holy shit!" Some of this sounds like new metal. Like, yeah. and it's part of it's the production and that his voice is yeah. like a little more masculine, a little more forward. Yeah. And I think that threw me off of a few songs on on the Fragile. Mm-hmm. Because like I, I mean I I don't care about Britney Spears and Backstreet Boys. Like those artists will have always existed and will mm-hmm. always exist. There's always going to be like a pop star, you mm-hmm. know. And there's always going to be that stuff. But like Corn <laughs> and Limp Bizkit and like yeah. oh like Slipknot. Like I don't think I've ever heard a Slipknot song, and I hate them simply because like <laughs> I would see. I remember, and this will this will let's tie this to Ryers. I remember going to buy tickets concert uh-huh. tickets in person from the the sunrise on young street you know the one sure. by like i do yeah. or i was walking i was walking by that that where a and a used to be, right? world. yeah 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 which yeah. one of them sold one of, anyway, one of them sold concert tickets where you actually had to like line up it was sunrise it was sunrise. Yeah, yeah. sunrise and i remember walking by sunrise and it was probably in 99 and uh and this will tie into your to your your movie podcast as well. I used to wear because right. I, because I'm a recovering goth. Like I used to wear a black <laughs> trench coat because I was super into the crow when I was in like grade nine and it carried. Anyways, so at that time I had short dyed black hair that was a little spiky, 
And I remember walking by that sunrise wearing this trench coat and probably like black 501s and my docks and whatever. And there was a lineup of kids in full-on Slipknot regalia because they used to like dress up like monsters. And one of them yelled out to me, oh, look, it's Neo from The Matrix. And I was like, oh, are you fucking kidding? Like, this, this is what I get now. Now I'm Neo from The Matrix because that's what's popular this year. In high school, they used to call me Marilyn Manson. Says so a guy dressed up in fucking Slipknot, like he, like yeah, let's exactly. not throw stones. Yeah, it was. <laughs> but I, I'll tell you this, I, you know, it's funny. You you bring up the the new metal thing, which I think is completely is a completely fair um, misinterpretation of Nine Inch Nails. Okay. I also think it's a it's a misinterpretation of Rage Against the Machine. Do they get lumped in with that? I mean, I guess they it, sure, right? I mean, like, yeah. first, but it, it should also be said, you know, Rage Against the Machines' last album, Battle for Los Angeles, comes out in '99 as well. Okay. We did we did an episode on that. Um, you know, I, I think that the the sort of rap rock, as much as yeah. that's not a fair, you know, label for for Rage Against the Machine, does get kind of co opted a little bit by some. Like Limp Biscuit is unfortunately an offshoot of, of a rage against the machine. Um, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. I mean, it's, it's interesting though, to see how, um, how nine inch nails has evolved to a certain degree. I mean, I want to just give a very brief kind of cursory, uh, history of the band. They form in 98 in of all cities, Cleveland, Ohio. It's not where I, it's not where I expected. Um, 88, sorry, 88. Uh, Trent Reznor is obviously singer-songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, producer, uh, the only permanent member of the band until the official addition of Atticus Ross in 2016, um, for what that's worth. Uh, their, their debut album, Pretty Hate Machine, is released in 89. They feud with the label, uh, and then they how they promoted the album, which is, is, a, is a sort of forebearer of what's to come in terms of the control that Trent wants to have over how these albums are promoted, marketed, released. Uh, signs with Interscope, releases an EP, Broken in 92. Downward Spiral comes out in 94, which is obviously a staggering success, still their most successful album. Um, catapults them to a level of fame, a surprising level of fame, because yeah. Trent, for all intents and purposes, said that he made an album that he thought had no singles and thought was not going to be successful at all. Um, it's enormously successful. Five years go by, Fragile is released to critical acclaim not commercial success uh nine inch nails has sold over 20 million records they've been nominated for 13 grammy awards including winning two for the songs wish in 92 and happiness and slavery in 96 time magazine named trent reznor one of the most influential people in 1997 while spin magazine once described him as the most vital artist in music in 2004 rolling stone placed nine inch nails as 94 on its list of the 100 greatest artists of all time Nine Inch Nails were nominated for induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2014, their first year of eligibility, and were nominated again in 2015 and 2020, where they actually did get in recently. Um, it seems only appropriate that they would get in during a pandemic. Uh-huh, sure. Um, in 97, uh, Reznor produces the soundtrack to Lynch's Lost Highways we mentioned, which mm-hmm. featured one new Nine Inch Nails song, The Perfect Drug. Around this time, Reznor's studio perfectionism, struggles with addiction, and bouts of writer's block prolonged the production of The Fragile. Um, over a year before the album's release, Reznor suggested, presumably deliberately misleadingly, that the album would be, quote-unquote, irritating to people. It's not traditional Nine Inch Nails. Think of the most ridiculous music you could ever imagine with nursery rhymes over top of it, a bunch of pop songs. 
I'm sure that was just him fucking with people, but I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't know if <laughs> there, I mean, there are definite pop songs on this yeah, album that are, that are, I mean, you can hear to me, you can hear the writer's block and you can hear the not, I'm not going to say overproduction because I mean, it's nine inch nails. It's, they kind of are built on layers mm-hmm. and layers of production, but it's, I mean, it, it does feel a bit like like he didn't have a specific path to follow on it. it it's not right. a consistent thought. Uh, it definitely sounds like it was made over a period of time and not mm-hmm. like one of those, you know, two days in the studio and you bang out an album. This feels yeah. like a labor of, I don't even say it's a labor of love, but it's like a labor. It's a labor. <laughs> it's laborious for sure. <laughs> um, and yeah. it's, yeah. But I can hear like the like lyrically, it is very simple. Uh, at times, I would say juvenile in a way. Um, For sure, very like, confessional at times. Very sort of like writing in my diary, sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I know that lyrics are important to 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 Trent Reznor and and mm-hmm. definitely to a lot of his fans. They was as much as I liked some of like it was never the lyrics that really drove it home for me when it comes to Nine Inch Nails. It was the, the combination of things. I mean, really the the sound and the imagery and and, mm-hmm. and the fact that he does write catchy songs. Uh, you know, like, it's funny, you brought up the Song Exploder episode, which I highly mm-hmm. recommend everybody watch on Netflix if they get a chance. Um, he did something or said something uh, during the episode, which I thought was really interesting. And, and it made me, th- I thought of it as, as I was listening to The Fragile. He talks about hiding his his voice. He talks mm-hmm. about like, um, you know, that, that, that the song Hurt, which the episode of Song Exploder is is examining, was, uh, you know, a, a very personal song to him. And it felt like he was exposing himself and he was insecure about that. So he buries his his vocals under layers and layers and layers of other things and sort of mm-hmm. deconstructs them and fucks with his voice. Um, you sense that a lot on The Fragile too. There's a lot of stuff that he's just sort of like burying um, under sort of loads of production, um, which I think is interesting. I, so two other things I want to, to mention. In September, uh, September 10th, 1998, at the 1998 MTV Video Music Awards, a 30-second teaser trailer was shown on television to promote the then-untitled album. It would be more than a year before the album was finally released. That in itself is sort yeah. of insane. Um, but I want to read something out of Stereo Gum that I think is really interesting about their 1999 VMA performance. Uh, 1999 was the first VMA since MTV had introduced the after-school show Total Request, Total Request Live. Uh, and so that year's show marked a sort of con- coronation of the new breed of flashy, upbeat, larger-than-life pop stars. Kid Rock opened the 99 VMAs with Run DMC and Aerosmith. Eminem closed the show with Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg. Britney Spears and NSYNC performed on stage together. They made it look like a high school classroom. And the Backstreet Boys um, had made their VMA debut in 1998. But in 99, they were conquering heroes. And somewhere in there, Nine Inch Nails debuted their title track of the new double album that they had released a few weeks later. The performance that Night Eats gave that night is, by award show standards, pretty great. The Fragile opens with a heavy-hearted churn and ends with a fire-drone rock-out conclusion. The whole time Trent Reznor projects, projects a steely intensity, but there's a moment about halfway through where Reznor breaks. Bathed in blue light and surrounded by metal latticework, Reznor has his arms up in a Jesus Christ pose, but he stops midline, laughing into his own armpit. 
Maybe he's just high as shit, or maybe he's helpless at the absurdity of the entire situation. Either way, it's pretty obvious to anyone that anyone watching the Trent Reznor, one of the decade's dominant rock stars, have become an instant relic. Um, I think there's something interesting there. I didn't see that VMAs. I've seen oh. clips of it. Um, the the <laughs> the ridiculous spectrum of artists performing on that stage, but then for Trent, th- this comes back to what we were saying earlier. Five years is a long time. So he's reemerged in a completely different musical landscape. And it's just like, wait a fucking second. I can't do this like this. This is ridiculous. Well, I mean, I remember like, like the MTV like awards in the, in the mid nineties were like something that you would want to watch, you know, like they're not anymore for me anyways, but like you can really see the shift between like if, like if he was performing at the 94 VMAs, like he'd be surrounded by more artists that were in, and which is, I mean, Dre did work on the fragile. So there's <laughs> along there's, with everyone else and their mother, it seems yeah. like, um, <laughs> but I mean, it, it, it's such a, a, a different, it's such a change. And I, I'm sure there were big pop stars in, mm-hmm. in 94 as well. Like I, I'm like Mariah Carey, I'm guessing had, Sure, something huge sure. at the time and like there was I mean, there was still yeah, that Madonna, of, i mean like it's there were yeah. lots of big artists yeah but i think people were still reeling from the reemergence of of rock and roll to the to the forefront which mm-hmm. hadn't really been there mm-hmm. in, a, in a while because at that point i mean even lumping in like bands like guns and roses and stuff like that like the last time rock was like what was its last mainstream sort of thing like hair metal in the 80s probably and, like that wasn't yeah. a mainstream sort of thing. And then you, I mean, obviously grunge and then part of it, I think too, um, is, and, and I think you'll sort of understand where I'm coming at this, this commodification of angst, right? Mm -hmm. This idea of when they saw the success of grunge, they were like, Oh, wait a second. There's a lot of like unhappy teens out there, quote unquote, let's, let's make money off of them. Right. And I think that, you know, you have grunge, then you obviously you have Kurt Cobain dying in 94, um, then this weird sort of like three-legged dog of grunge for a few years until that kind of dies away. And and mixed into this, into that kind of weird thing is is Nine Inch Nails, right? I mean, they're they're yeah. they're coming up in the sort of mid to late nineties. Yeah, like separate but equal in terms of popularity. Correct. Uh, Correct. And I mean, that's also you got like Lollapalooza happening then. So you've yeah. got these like yeah. massive um, you know, rock centric festivals, yep. which you know, you look at some of those early lineups and it's, and it's insane. It's crazy. Who's playing together. Uh, so you have, you know, more in the mainstream, this like a pretty good quality rock and roll scene, even though it's super popular. I mean, there's always been great like rock and roll, indie, you know, stuff, punk, all of the new wave stuff. There's tons of great like music in the eighties that wasn't mainstream, but you know, it's still, and even now, even in 99, there was like looking at the list of albums that came out in 99, like it's not a great year for popular music, I would say, but there's still some, like some of my favorite albums came out in 99, which I yeah. don't really think of it that way because I wasn't listening to those artists at the time. I started listening yeah, to them like 10 years later sort of thing. I'm I, similarly, I mean, this, this, this comes back to sort of, and we've, we've had these discussions, you and I, and, and in groups of friends in terms of, you know, is is something good because it's popular and vice versa um you know this idea of of success and popularity and and um 
you know, I'm sure we all have friends uh, that like bands until they become popular. Um, and then they're just like, well, I knew them before they were popular and then they, oh, yeah. then, you know, then they don't want to listen to them anymore. But I, but I think that um, it's, this album is interesting because it feels like um, it really, I mean, it, it, Reznor said here, I, I have this quote where he said, um, described by Reznor as a sequel to the Downward Spiral, an album with a plot detailing the destruction of a man. The Fragile is a concept album dealing with his personal issues, including depression, angst, drug abuse. Reznor said, I wanted this album to sound like there was something inherently flawed in the situation, like someone struggling to put the pieces together. The Downward Spiral was about peeling off layers and arriving at a naked, ugly end. This album starts at that end, then attempts to create order from chaos, but never reaches the goal. It's probably a bleaker album because it arrives back where it starts with the same emotion the album begins with somewhat damaged and ends with ripe with decay then in 2019 Reznor said the fragile occupies a very interesting and intimate place in my heart I was going through a turbulent time in my life when making it and revisiting it has become a form of therapy for me which I think is quite interesting mm-hmm. um so the fragile was conceived by making songwriting and arranging and production and sound design the same thing. A song would start with a drum loop or a visual and eventually a song would emerge out of it. Uh, and that was the song. I mean, how do you feel about you're a person obviously who's doing this literally with your own music to a certain degree? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he relied a lot on soundscapes, electronic beats, ambient noise, uh, rock laden guitar usage of melodies as harmonies, what have you, industrial noises and what have you. Are you, do you see yourself or do you, do you find yourself doing similar things, finding the music in things that might not necessarily be overtly musical? Uh, I mean, that's not, that's not me. I can, I can, I can definitely hear that, you know, like I, I, you know, you can hear stuff even just not that anyone walks around anymore, but you know, you hear stuff when you're out in an environment that yeah. that certainly resonates as as being musical, even if it's not a specific like tone or rhythm or, or anything sure. like that. Um, I mean, I think hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I don't know how much of that is like he, he put together like how many tracks is on this? Like 22, 23 I songs. 20, 20 like songs. I'm sure in some cases that's, <laughs> that that's how some songs came about. You know, yeah. uh, it was like the, maybe not, maybe not even the instrumental ones, but parts of these songs that, that carry on for a long period of time. Like a lot of these songs move back and forth between um, like, they're not super repetitive some of them like there's really distinct parts where it's um it'll go from 
a more pop-oriented sound to then into more of a soundscapey uh, ambient sound and then back into it. So it, I, it seems like there was a lot of meddling with like different concepts and, and, and gluing things together. Uh, there's a lot of construction for sure on this album. Uh, yeah, it, it, it feels like um, you're listening to it being like, there's a method to this madness here. Like there, it's, it's, it's messy um, but it feels intentional. It all sort of has this sort of very kind of um, uh, stream of consciousness kind of vibe to it as well. It all kind of flows into itself. That's the other thing that mm-hmm. I kind of found interesting, you know, I, and and um, I, I, I wonder, you know, critics talked a lot about sort of progressive rock, art rock, electronica, avant-garde. It, it doesn't, it doesn't sound like anything else really. Um, I mean, it sounds like Nine Inch Nails a little bit, but, or at least their previous output. Um, But it's it's its own thing. And I can only imagine, you know, 99, the critics were pretty split on it. You know, Spin Mm -hmm. said it was the best album of the year. Pitchfork Media said, panned it and gave it, said it had melodramatic lyrics. Um, It does. Both can be right. Um, I, I think that it's, I just think it's really interesting. It also has sort of the, the dubious achievement of at the time being the steepest drop in the history of music from number one to number 16. I, I uh, totally understand why that would happen too. Yeah, I mean, if he says that there's no singles on the downward spiral, like, there are no singles on this really. I mean, the ones that came out, like I, I sort of remember seeing the video for, I think it was into the void mm-hmm. um, a few times, but, and definitely the video for Starfuckers a lot. That mm-hmm. seemed to be the more popular of, mm-hmm. Like of the of the singles, even though that wasn't like originally even supposed to be on the album, I don't think it um, wasn't. They the, the the label jammed it on there at the last it, second because they were like, "It's a ridiculous song." It's like a even at the time, I was like, "This song is not." There's a video of him and like Marilyn Manson in the back of in the, the back limo. Of the limo. I think. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it's tons of vocal processing on that, like almost yeah. approaching like auto tuning in a way, mm-hmm. even though it's just uh, it's more rhythmic than than tonal. That's the song that you look at and you're like. Okay, corn. Okay, Slipknot. Like you see bit, all yeah. of that there's shit a, off of that. Yeah, there's a few songs on the album that that have that, which which throws me off. And it, it's funny we were talking about like him burying the vocals. I think he should have buried them a bit more on this <laughs> because honestly, like I his this is the album where his voice changes. Like yeah. he it becomes um, like more mature, a little older. It it doesn't have that the youthful sort of um, mm-hmm. it's, it's fuller and it's also at the forefront more often than not of the mix. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has a sort of, I mean, their, their music's always been aggressive and it's always been masculine in, yeah. in, in many ways, not to say that it's only popular with men because it definitely is not. And that is also partially doing the fact that, you know, young Trent Reznor was, very attractive good looking yeah good looking yeah. guy um, uh but this had a sort of masculinity to it which never really resonated with me it was a bit it's like some of it's a bit too aggro sounding and i think again this yeah. is in the context of like corn and and limp biscuit and kid rock and these like you know like i just that There's music a just bit of, well, it feels a little i don't want to say poser because that's not really what he's doing but there there is a chest out component at times on these yeah. songs where it's a guy who's trying to sort of be like putting on a bit of a show like it doesn't feel like it feels like what he thinks people want him to be 
Yeah, and, and it's odd because, I mean, he was working on this for so long and it's weird that it comes out in the same year that like a lot of these, like I I'm, I'm would never assume that he was like aping on like this new metal stuff because yeah. it would have been happening, you know, at the same time. Like he would have been working on this while they were doing stuff and it, it could just be coincidental that yeah. um, that was happening. And it's only on some of the tracks that it really jumps out to me. Um, I'm trying to think like which ones there's something about the and I don't want to like shit on this album as being no I don't think I don't think you are I mean Um, I think I think there's I think it's a it's a messy album but I think that's a lot of people think it's a messy masterpiece it's funny there's there's some songs I think it's is it no you don't maybe or where it's like I absolutely hate half of the song and then (laughs) I really like the other half and it's an an impressive thing to have this like um because it's it starts with like this nasally sort of whiny yeah. verse, but then the, like the chorus and the the way it climaxes at the end, where it gets super fuzzy and super distorted, and it reminds me a lot of like something off of Broken. Um, yeah, it's like this is fantastic, but then the other stuff has got this this plodding sort of nasally sound to it, which it just never it didn't sound like. And he's right, like it didn't sound like a Nine Inch Nails album. A lot of it, sometimes. Yeah. Is it, that's a good thing. Like I, the, the use of more organic instrumentation um, mm-hmm. is, is interesting. Like you can hear the space around the instruments, which um, might have something to do with Steve Albini working on it. He's, he's like, I know you don't like music production is not really your thing, but Steve yeah. Albini yeah. is known for being like, he's produced, I mean, tons of bands that, that you love and that I love, you know, mm-hmm. like, most famously, you know, he did in utero, um, but also like the Pixies and um, the Breeders and, and then like Lowe sure. and, and like tons of these, tons of bands. Like almost every band has worked with Steve Albini at some point. I didn't actually know that he worked on this album until like yesterday. Um, but right. now knowing that you can hear this sort of natural. So he tends to record stuff the way it sounds. So in a yeah. studio, he wants to be as transparent as possible in a way mm-hmm. and let what the musicians are playing, like, let that be the sound. Sure. Um, so you don't really go to him to like, make me sound like something like, you know, like make me sound like a certain band. You go to him if you want to sound like yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can hear on some of these tracks, like somewhat damaged and, and you can hear like the fingers on the, on the fretboard, you know, you can hear the strings sliding. You can mm-hmm. hear the space around the instruments in a room, which you never really heard with Nine Inch Nails before. It was always super processed. You know, it's always Trent doing it by himself, really. Um, Mm -hmm. So everything is much more composed in that way. Whereas this album has some space to it. Um, Like my my favorite track on this album, which I'll ask you, I guess, afterwards, what your favorite is. Mm -hmm. has. And I was wondering, going back to listen to it again, it had been a long time since I'd listened to it. Sure how am I going to like, listen, like, how is it going to sound to me now? And is my favorite track still going to be my favorite track? And it is. And it's an instrumental one. Uh, It's just like you imagined. It's the seventh Mm -hmm. track. And it's, I mean, it sounds like it could have been like, I think any of the instrumentals on this sound like they could have been in their more recent score work. Like I hear some of, some of these tracks, I'm like, that could easily have been on the Watchmen soundtrack. Which oh a hundred percent to me it was I, I, like the yeah. best Nine Inch Nails album since 
downward spiral, I would say. Yeah. Because uh, some of the tracks on, on the Watchmen soundtrack are like, gave me those early Nine Inch Nails feels, which was fantastic. And some of them, some of these tracks could easily have been on there. But so on that yeah, track, I mean, just the, imagine you hear these like, you can hear, it's all instrumentation. Um, you can hear them playing as a band or whoever it was playing. Uh, and then it breaks down to some like this like loose freeform sort of piano in the middle of it. And then it ramps back up with more electronic elements. It's a really interesting track and it still is to me. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I mean, it should be said, you know, that when I listened to it and I mentioned this earlier, it kind of all flowed into itself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, singling out specific songs I, is, is a little tricky. I will say though, it does feel a little front loaded to me in, in terms of like, it really tries as much as it can under its own circumstances to hook you in the sort of the first handful of tracks. And then it hopes it holds on to you for the remainder of, of, of the, of the ride. I mean, I, I'd be lying if I said that, you know, I, I really love we're in this together. I know it's a single. Um, and, and I think the wretched is, is also a, a really beautiful song. It's really um, inter- interesting. Yeah. Like musically. It's, it's a very interesting track. I find. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Um, Chuck Palahniuk, the, mm-hmm. uh, obviously the, the writer of fight club, said, I remember being amazed when I first heard The Wretched. This wasn't just on we. This was an active, aggressive, angry lack of caring. It's not let's kill ourselves. It's let's kill each other. It's not rock and roll. It's not classical. It's something in between, which I think is interesting. Um, I, I also feel like, and I, I, I want to, I obviously want your opinion on this because there's a bunch of music journalists that, that chimed in on on various influences that they sensed in, in this album. Um, music journalist Ann Powers observed elements of progressive rock bands like King Crimson and Roxy Music, Reznor's influences and the experimentation of electronic artists such as Architecture and Square Pusher, and mm-hmm. wrote that the Fragile uses funk bass lines, North African minor key modulations, and the treatment of tonality by symbolist composers like Debussy. And Rob Sheffield observes a, pro- a prog rock vibe akin to Pink Floyd's 79 album, The Wall, and felt that The Fragile is similarly a double album that vents alienation and misery into paranoid studio hallucinations, each track crammed with overdubs until there's no breathing room. Do you sense all of this on there? I mean, so that last comment, how there's no breathing room, I, I don't I don't think that's really true okay. in, yeah. in a lot of cases because they're actually what, – what I found interesting is that there is some some breathing room on tracks. Sure. Like, um, like somewhat damaged. So the opening track starts with that like – and this is where I think a lot of people got like the, the prog sort of sure. sound, which I mean I don't really hear. It's I think as soon as you get – syncopation in music uh-huh. the easy yeah. thing is to just call it prog um <laughs> but i would not call this a prog album sure by any stretch like i'm not i'm not a big prog music fan i'm not a big pink floyd fan like i like some I of their their early stuff when they had sid barrett before he went insane on it but mm-hmm. like the, there's one king crimson album that i've listened to which is the most listenable prog album i would say for for me it's got that 21st century schizoid man which is a great rock and roll track that like you could definitely hear that influenced i'm sure a lot of industrial artists and a lot of heavy artists because you've got this crazy vocal processing that gives him that that screamy sound mm-hmm. um and you've got like a, a pretty big riff that 
you could definitely hear it on um what song is it on I'm trying to think of the song on the on the down spiral where you have like a guitar riff that's sort of mirrored with um like a string sort of section mm-hmm. that gives it like a bigger more sure. grandiose sound mm-hmm. uh you can hear that influence but to call it like a prog album i don't think is super accurate because it's not as prog music is super tight like it's yeah. all about the art like the musicians being totally in sync with each other when it comes to these like syncopated sounds and yeah. i mean yes there is like a lot of like i'm sure in some of that music there's a lot of layering and a lot of more dreamy type stuff but i don't really hear that too much in here like square pusher i'm sort of familiar with sure. that kind of i think what they're probably referring to there is like there's a lot of like breakbeat type stuff mm-hmm. on this which you heard a lot on the perfect drug like the perfect drug has that crazy drum yeah. track underneath it which is like manic and fast and you hear that in in parts on the fragile for sure mm-hmm. um but the album moves around so much it's kind of hard to well that's kind of the thing which i think is interesting i mean because of its sort of i mean schizophrenic kind of yeah. com- feeling to it um it, it it doesn't it, it clearly doesn't want to be pinned down like it clearly mm-hmm. wants to be whack-a-mole in terms of oh you think it's this now it's going to be this like it's it's just really trying to keep you on edge which i think is part of its charm he's definitely following like he's he, it's definitely an album that he's he's doing because this is what he wants to do yeah like if this yes. was if he wanted to make i i think if trent Reznor wanted to make a full-on pop album full of hits he could do it you know like i'm sure he could write for other artists and and make tons of money because he can write hooks you know he can write and they're on this album but they're buried a bit more than sure but even even if you compare this album to with teeth which is you know obviously many years later post rehab you know gets his shit together um decides to put out a new album i mean that album is is tight and short it's got like singles it's like it is definitely an album with a mission which is we're back and we're gonna we're, we're, we're gonna find some sense of the zeitgeist again and i like with teeth i know that i know that uh, purists might not enjoy that album as much as as much as others and that's fine um but i enjoy some of the the, the hits on that so album. i'll i'll make a confession i have okay. not listened to a nine inch nails album okay i never listened to with teeth i've <laughs> okay. never listened to that album once i know that there was a was it the hand that feeds was that on that album that is i'm, the, I'm familiar with that song yeah. um between when the fragile came out and when their next album came out, you know, like that's all of university. How long was it between those? That's a good question. It was another five We're years. Talking. I think I think it was 2004. Was it five years. Yeah. And it was five years without the benefit of like a lost highway in the middle. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think at that point I had like, you know, I've 2005. So it was 2005. Six yeah. yeah. So we finished university Mm-hmm. we've moved into like the next stage, the next of, our stage of our lives <laughs> and it, it's funny. So I went to see, so I've seen Nine Inch Nails twice. I saw them mm-hmm. on the fragile tour, which you know sure. we can talk about. Um, I, yeah, definitely. And then I saw them again, maybe three or four years ago when my, my oldest brother who got me into Nine Inch Nails originally when I was like nine, yeah. um, he had an extra ticket and he's like, mm-hmm. do you want to go to the show? And I was like, I probably wouldn't have paid to go see them. Mm-hmm. at this point necessarily um but 
It was like, yeah, they did a, they did a shit ton of tours. Like within the last, they've they've been yeah. they toured pretty heavily until they retired again and then yeah. didn't retire and whatever. Anyway. So I think this this tour was before they did that release of like those mm-hmm. three sort of EPs. EPs, yeah, yeah. Um, so this was uh, maybe 2015, maybe mm-hmm. early 2016. But anyways, I went I went to the show and it was incredible for a band that meant so much to me and that I listened to so much. I knew so few of the songs. Um, for a lot of the show, but people were going, like, people were into it. Like, people were going crazy. And the one thing that really stood out to me um, is towards the end of the first set, I guess before the encore, they played, and I mentioned the song earlier, A Warm Place from Downward Spiral, which, beautiful instrumental track. Sure. And, like, half the people in the section around me got up and left to go to like the bathroom or to go to get like a, a beer or something like that. And I was like, you're leaving during the one song from the <laughs> biggest album. And, but they're singing along to all these words to, to these songs that I've never heard before. And I was like, it was so strange to be like that. There's this new yeah. section of Nine Inch Nails fans that don't listen to the stuff before with teeth, I guess. Yeah. It's, it, I, I, it does feel like, you know, this hiatus that he takes, this six-year hiatus to sort of get his life back together, however you want to um, denote it, does feel like a fulcrum point, right? Like it feels like a moment where um, he kind of turned a page. And and listen, I, I with Teeth was a big fucking album. This was the reemergence of a of a enormously successful band from the 90s mm-hmm. uh rebranding itself i mean i remember i remember seeing him perform at some show if it was the grammys or the vmas or i don't know what but i remember him performing the hand that feeds i remember mm-hmm. it being a great performance it was a it was the thing about with teeth is it's the most accessible version of nine inch nails right so for a person like myself it it probably worked for me more than a person who loves this band through and through and has sort of like gone through the dark days of this band to me. And I'm f- fully willing to admit that I'm a fair weather fan of this band. I, I, I enjoy a lot of their stuff. I listen yep. to a lot of their stuff. Um, the album that comes out after with teeth year zero is actually one of my favorite albums of theirs really? um, okay. because of the story it tells. I mean, they tried to turn it into an HBO uh, television show many right. years ago. That, yeah. And, and I, I think it's a fascinating album I'm I'm a fan of the concept album. I, I just I enjoy it for what it is. Yeah. And I it think that Trent Reznor really is a good storyteller. I mean, I, I think he he is a good I mean, whether or not you want to look at his songs as stories or not, I mean, I think they are. They're emotional stories where he's sort of taking us on a journey. But to get back to your original point about seeing them now versus seeing them back in the day, I mean they kind of are two versions, right? Like they're two different bands really. And, and I mean, and I mean, literally and figuratively, I mean, yeah. obviously we mentioned there's a lot of revolving door of, of people in the band, but also the band now feels like almost a hobby to Trent Reznor. Well, it kind as of opposed is, yeah. to, You know, it's right? It's not like, big anymore for sure. Yeah. Um, I, I think fascinating. that they probably became, so seeing them a few years ago and mm-hmm. seeing them in, I guess it was probably 2000 um, yeah. or 2001. Mm-hmm. I think it was 2000. Um, I mean, they became, you know, their earlier days, they were a minimal stage setup and they would just beat the shit out of each other and out of their <laughs> instruments. Yes. Like the, the keyboard stands that their whoever was playing synth at the time would have was like, mm-hmm. I've never seen those anywhere else. Was It was on like a, like on a, like a pivot. 
it was like so that he could get the shit kicked out of him and the keyboard would stay in place and not just get knocked over. It's crazy. Uh, but then what they became, I think probably with the Fragile Tour, was mm -hmm. a visual experience as mm -hmm. well. So they became much more, a much tighter, more polished machine with less room for shenanigans. One of the most beautiful shows I've ever seen was For the sure. One, the, the one I saw a few years ago had an insane light component to it. This like Unreal. 3D grid of lights that was like, it was amazing. And when they, you know, had the quieter moments where they were just playing and, and letting the the show, the stage show do the work, it was, it, it was super impressive. The, sh the Fragile Tour, they, uh, and this will tie back to, to mm -hmm. Ryerson. Uh, <laughs> so I went to go see it with Will and with our friend Federico, who yeah. was uh, an Italian exchange student, essentially. Not exchange, but, you know. Still is student. Italian. Yeah. It's still very much... <laughs> like if you think of what a Roman would look like, that's Federico. Uh, Indeed. Indeed. He is. Uh, anyway, so the three of us went to that show. It was at Maple Leaf Gardens, which was the last, I saw two shows at Maple Leaf Gardens. I saw Smashing Pumpkins for the Melancholy Tour. And I saw. Um, I hate you for seeing that show. I could have gone and I didn't. I, uh, I have no good excuse for it. Again, so tying back to like Sunrise Records, I remember going to the mall near my house mm -hmm. at like six in the morning getting yeah. in that lineup for tickets for Smashing Pumpkins, which is not a thing that happens anymore. Um, no. Thankfully, because that was not fun. I've waited a, for a few shows like that <laughs> in my life, and it's not the yeah. most fun thing in the world. Um, now I look back on it wistfully, but yeah. I know what you're saying. That, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, so yeah, it was at Maple Leaf Gardens, and they had these, uh, it was like a three-channel video projection. Mm -hmm. So you had these like three really, really tall, like, was it just out of curiosity the show was it in the round or did they block off one side of it for the stage do you remember i'm just curious because like some no, bands they must have blocked it off it must have been in half because yeah. it was definitely like a oh like a unidirectional show you yeah. had to be yeah. looking yeah. at it from from one angle that makes sense yeah so you had these like I don't know, 100 foot tall video screens maybe sure. bigger than that these three super narrow tall screens playing this this video this like mm -hmm. you know um, not not abstract stuff, but like filmed footage um, mm -hmm. of like people diving into water and stuff like that. And these, it, it was gorgeous. It was like this beautiful setup. And in one section of the show, uh, it was like an instrumental section. So mm -hmm. they played like three or four instrumental songs in a row. Um, mm -hmm. I think all from the Fragile. May have may have been another other one in there as well. Mm -hmm. um, so anyways, it was a gorgeous part of the show. It's my favorite part of the show, probably. Um, all like in general, it was a fantastic show. Like it's so afterwards. Yeah, no, please, yeah. So I found out like maybe a couple of years after that, when the, the DVD for that show came out and I bought mm -hmm. it, that the video artist that did the work was this guy, Bill Viola, who we had studied a lot at Ryerson in the new media program. <laughs> he was like, like, a, like a, preeminent video artist like he was mm -hmm. like a, a pretty big deal and since then i've seen his work in galleries like you know like really? first time i went to europe we saw one of his video projections in this church in in bruges i think it was and it was like you could tell like this is the same same artist the same visual style and everything like that it was it's a funny tie-in that um yeah well it was i feel a like show. i'll say that for sure i mean this this ties into you know to what you and Jan studied quite honestly mm -hmm. you know which is this idea of 
there are certain artists and you know we, we a couple come to mind of trying to present you not just with a live music experience right it's like it's it's the idea of a, your favorite artist or band getting on a stage and performing performing songs for you that in and of itself is obviously a great thing and obviously they know that but to create an art installation within what they're doing and to try mm-hmm. to sort of elevate this experience to another level i mean bjork comes to mind oh, sure. um you know and 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 there are others obviously but um it's it transports you somewhere and it gets mm-hmm. you thinking about things you know we, we studied this together in in you know first year we had a lot of classes together to yeah. talk about sort of the, the 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 overlap and the unity of these different art forms and when you see that symbiosis of visual and music and and lyrics and all of it coming together it's it really trans it's a transcendent experience and you know, I think that it's something that Trent obviously went out of his way to do. I mean, at the time, Interscope refused to fund the tour for the Fragile, so hmm. Reznor committed his he committed to fund the entire tour himself, which wow. quickly sold out. So he concluded. He said, "The reality is, I'm broke at the end of the tour, but also I'll never present a show that isn't fantastic." Like I think that there's something about this and we I mean, the history of music and film and television is littered with people that have that have decided to put themselves on the line and to mortgage their house or do whatever oh, it is in order to make that that art thing um that piece of art um and and it's tremendous that being said uh during this tour Trent Reznor suffers a heroin overdose in London uh in June of 2000 uh forcing that show to be canceled and pushing Reznor into rehab uh and putting Nine Inch Nails on hold until he became sober. Yeah. Um you know what's interesting too and this this ties into the the Song Exploder episode that we watched is that Hurt um is it, it, sort of is covered by Johnny Cash in 2002 and becomes sort of this um tome or, or however you want to call it to, to sort of his career and mm-hmm. and sort of looks and and it's a beautiful cover it's a tremendous music video directed by mark romanek it's one of the best music videos i think right because like, it's like it's, it's a life in four awesome. minutes <laughs> it's, it's it's incredible yeah. it, it's it's shocking it really is and uh after seeing the music video which later won a grammy trent reznor himself obviously became a fan of it and there's this great quote here where he said uh, I popped the video in and wow, tears welling, silence, goosebumps. I felt like I lost my girlfriend because that song isn't mine anymore. I really make, I really, it really made me think about how powerful music is as a medium and art form. I wrote some words and music in my bedroom as a way of staying sane about a bleak and desperate place I was in, totally isolated and alone. Somehow that winds up being reinterpreted by a music legend from a radically different era and genre and still retains sincerity and meaning different, but every bit as pure. Um, I think that, that, you know, in a lot of ways, it's, I think it's really interesting how attached and distant Trent is from his own work. Like he has this analytical perspective Mm -hmm. and this is probably post (laughs) post drugs, but he has this perspective now Mm -hmm. of being able to sort of intellectualize the process of what he's doing and yet also be emotionally invested in it, which I think is really fascinating. So, I mean, I'll, I'll say this as a, I mean, I would, I would never describe myself as a songwriter, but I mean, I, I've written songs, so I guess I kind of am. (laughs) Um, but I, I, you know, I've always listened to what other songwriters I admire say about the songwriting process. Yeah. And there's a few different, um, things that, that always 
there's a common thread that I think a lot of songwriters have is that you're not necessarily writing the song yourself. You're kind mm-hmm. of discovering it. Um, yep. One artist I like, like it's like akin to like pulling this fully formed thought out of the air, you know, like, and then it's just yours. Um, Towns Van Zant said, you know, like asked about like, you know, why, why am I, why do I talk about my songs in this sort of way that maybe sounds like self-indulgent, like saying they're great songs. And he's kind of said something like, if I didn't write it, someone else would like, it's not really my song. It's a song that existed and I'm the one that found it first. Um, there's a, there's another like line from this live Neil Young performance that I love where he says he's about to play a song and he says, um, um, like, here's a, here's a, here's a song I just learned. I wrote it too. And it's like, (laughs) it's that feeling like it's not really, it's not really your song. It's like, you just, it was out there and, and you figured out how to vocalize it like how to make. And so I can, I can understand why. I mean, I'm sure that was a tremendously personal song for Trent, but at the same time, it's like, once it's out there, it's, I don't know. Like It's not, it's not yours anymore, first, yeah, first and I, foremost. I, yeah. And some people just don't even think it was ever theirs to begin with. You know, like I, when yeah. I've written songs sometimes, it's, it's a surprise. You know, like all of a sudden, like I can write a song and like, it'll be fully formed in a matter of minutes and it's, and it's shocking. But I mean, some people are obviously much more prolific at that than others. Um, I think for, for Trent, knowing that he was more of a classically trained musician, Mm -hmm. he can definitely sit and compose in ways that like I certainly wouldn't. And a lot of artists just can't like he said in that song, a splitter thing that the piano is his, you know, sort of weapon of choice when it comes to songwriting that's where he starts and i'm sure a lot of this album started on piano and then expanded outwards because there's only so much you can do with that instrument um i i totally agree with you about this idea of of tapping into something i mean i've i've often had moments where i write a scene and it's like fucking pulling teeth right it's just it takes hours days you know and sometimes it just never works and you're just like yeah. fuck it i gotta move on um and then there are times where I think this is sort of what you're talking about, where it just feels like a wavelength. It feels like a thing that you've tapped into out in the universe. And I'm not a hippy dippy person by any means, mm-hmm. but there is something, I don't know if it's larger than us necessarily, but that just sort of uses you as a vessel for a second, or you use it and you're sort of tapping into something. Um, and and it it I agree with you. It, it doesn't totally feel yours. It feels mm-hmm. like there's something else um, you know, I don't want to say using you, but I think you know what I mean. It's no, I, no, I just, sure. it's, I, it's it's really interesting. I, I think that it's also, um, you know, there's this there's this quote here. It's, it's the last quote that I have from this Stereo Gum article that I that I really like because it says, um, "The Fragile is an immersion album, a hundred and four minute internal head trip where the sound design resonates more than the riffs or hooks or lyrics. To listen to the Fragile on headphones is to disappear into its world." You can listen to a song at a time, but it's a whole lot more satisfying to give yourself over to it, to let each pling and whir and hum and dissolving scrape sound sweep you away. But in 1999, huge mass audiences were, by and large, not willing to sacrifice their consciousness to Trent Reznor's cinematic imagination. And I think that that, I mean, first of all, it it, it really sums up how I feel about this album. Mm -hmm. I think that it's, 
that it is an art piece, that it is some sort of an installation piece that that is demanding all of you. And if you can't give all of yourself to it, it will not be a rewarding as rewarding an experience, I imagine. Mm-hmm. It's why he's talked about in the past how now he has people coming up to him saying that that it's their favorite Nine Inch Nails album. Um, I think those people have let themselves go to it. Like they've given yeah. themselves over to it and allowed it to be um, really important to them. It's an experience. They've gone on a journey with this thing and they've allowed it sort of inside them. Um, there's so little music that can be described that way. You know what I mean? Albums that can be described this way, which makes it so special and also makes it, you know, you said it yourself it's not your favorite Nine Inch Nails album. It's not mine either. Um, That's not to say that it's not an unbelievable achievement and that it's not an amazing album in its own right. Um, It also feels in its own fucked up way like the quintessential 1999 album, right? Like in the sense that it it was misinterpreted, Mm -hmm. uh, made by a person who was, you know, dealing with significant problems, launched a thousand shitty ships of of new metal and what have you um and also quite frankly took him to his breaking point in order to find a way forward for himself in a career that's been unbelievably successful since in different ways um yeah it's just it it was unbelievably successful and then dropped off like like this idea of just this hugely you know big chart topping album that drops off the charts i just think it's fascinating so what year is the social network? Is that 2010? It's 2010, yeah. So, I mean, if you break his career up into like 10-year increments, let's <laughs> say he started working on social network in 2009, sure. the soundtrack. Yeah. It's like you get Pretty Hate Machine in, in 89, you get the Fragile yeah. in 99, and then you launch your your mm. career as a, as a, you know, as scoring movies with the social network. Like, it's it's an interesting trajectory. Okay. Uh, like to go from this bedroom synth pop artist essentially mm-hmm. to that weird space between downward spiral and with teeth to then to what he is now, which is, I mean, ultimately more successful than music what composer. He, yeah, like <laughs> it, it, it's it's crazy. I mean, and it's, it's not it's not really that surprising because, like, the music on his albums was always to me like the strongest part. And he said it himself in that in that song exploder thing. He's not the best singer in the world. No. Like he says like, oh I wish I had that instrument like Bowie has yeah. to be able to sing like that. Yeah. You know, but musically, he's he's a, always been a brilliant composer. Like yeah. uh if you stripped all of the singing away from from his albums, they'd still be and I know they did that with the fragile. I've never listened mm-hmm. to that instrumental version. But I haven't like, either, yeah. There's, you know, when you can write a, a catchy instrumental track, you know that you're a good composer because yeah. a lot of times it's just, for a lot of artists, it's just the background. You know, the vocals are all that matter. In pop music especially, you know, like you get one hook and you loop that for half the song and then the vocals are at the forefront. Whereas, you know, you take a look at like So Closer mm-hmm. is, you know, arguably his biggest song i mean it was certainly at the time became very well known for a bunch of reasons it was extremely controversial song but you strip the vocals away from that song and it's still like 
a killer song to listen to. Like he's always had that funk element that they, that the Mm -hmm. critic wrote about for this. Mm -hmm. He's always had that slithery sort of baseline. It's always been very danceable because I mean, that's important to this genre of music. Like, yeah. You know, you, you, something that I think should be said about music composing and why Trent Reznor is, is so good at it. Um, I remember uh, way back when, uh, I watched the pilot for for Sleepy Hollow without score. Hmm. I was just you know, the, just the assembly, um, and I was like, "Oh yeah, I mean that this works. This is fine." And then and then the the composer did the score, and all of a sudden you're like, "I understand how to feel now." Like mm-hmm. uh, music composition, scoring of movies, and and I, I think that any director worth their salt will admit this that the music is what fucking makes it work. Like it is what propels everything forward. It's what gives you emotion. It's what gives you propulsion. It is, it is everything. And for, for Trent in you know, specifically social network, but in so many of his other, uh, him and Atticus's other uh, scores, it's just to find that beautiful marriage of, of what could be described as dissident drone noise mm-hmm. The beauty of that, the propulsion of that, and then also just this, he taps into emotion so beautifully. Like, to your point, take the lyrics away, take the singing away. He knows how to tap into just raw emotion. And that's why I think he's such a beautiful music composer. Think think about the the piano drops at the end of Closer. Like that, that, which is almost to me like the theme song for Nine Inch Nails, the band. Like that, that melody has repeated itself in in various ways but like i mean i can see the video of him like leaning over the piano playing those notes um but like yeah and getting emotion out of that simplicity of music because his stuff can be super simple like it's gonna be really layered but the melodies are they're not like like sufian stevens like his instrumental works which are like bombastic and and insane um, yeah theatrical but, at least yeah. Um, and I mean, I love him, but like, you know, Trent is, is, makes things a little more, it's a little more streamlined, um, when it comes to minimality and stuff like that. For sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so think of scoring, like, it's amazing. I agree that like the music does so much work. It's amazing that like no country for old men has no music until he wakes up in, in Mexico or wherever it is. And that movie gets close, but I was thinking about like Neil Young's score for Dead Man, which is mm-hmm. like, again, simple and propulsive. And it, it's, you know, it's in that same vein, I think of, I mean, I could, I could see Trent being a fan of that kind of sure. thing. Cause it's very atmospheric. It's not just, you know, straightforward guitar work. It's a lot of rumbling. There's a lot of, um, a lot of simplicity in both their works. You could also, I mean, you can see it in Johnny Greenwood's uh, work on There Will Be Blood versus yeah. Phantom Thread, you know, which are obviously two drastically different scores. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that you're, you're sort of speaking to that sort of minimalist quality that, that Trent brings to it. Also, it just makes you feel very stripped. It makes you feel very um, primal in a way mm-hmm. that I think um, a lot of composers don't go there. I mean, he's just, he's also coming at it. I mean, he's, he's pretty open about it. I watched a really great... Um, video interview with him uh, talking with Alan Sappenwall, him and Atticus talking about the score to Watchmen. And, mm-hmm. you know, he's he's very open about the fact that he's just like, 
we don't really know what we're doing. Like we're not like it's not as though this was a conscious effort. I mean, yeah. Fincher, who knows how he even convinced them to do the score for Social Network, but that sort of obviously that opens the door. But like again, it, it this is sort of it's it's a little bit of baby steps, right? It's you know we see obviously there's there's instrumental stuff in Nine Inch Nails, and then you have like the Ghosts album mm-hmm. albums, which are just strip you know which are strictly mm-hmm. instrumental. So it's not like a huge leap for Fincher to to you know to, to ring him up and say like no. why don't you do a why don't you compose this? But you know <laughs> they're so good at it probably because there's this element of winging it. A little bit of just not knowing the quote unquote rules of composing a score. Yeah. You know, I think that, I mean, and sometimes like I didn't really love Tom York's score to Suspiria personally. Right. It doesn't always work out. Yeah. I mean, we've seen many bands try to do, many artists try to do the music to movies. Oh, yeah. just most, most of the times it's forgettable. It's, I think it's, it's amazing how successful they were on their first shot at this. Like yeah. it's, it's not surprising, but I mean, like it could have been horrible. Like well, it could have been overindulgent. It could have been messy yeah. and too, too, too big for, for that. But it was so, yeah. I mean, I've, I've only seen the social network. I think I've seen it twice. Um, mm-hmm. It's a, from what I remember of the score, it's fairly minimal. Like it was. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a lot of piano and a fair amount of electronic drone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and I think it worked perfectly for, for that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's a reason why we're not talking about Billy Corgan's score to Stigmata, for instance. <laughs> Probably a few reasons. Yeah. I would definitely not. Uh, if I was making a picture, Corgan wouldn't be my first call. That's, uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's it is a it's. Listen, it's a it's a weird thing. Um, and if I do find it very interesting, how and on a, on a previous podcast, I think I was talking about um, how Hollywood is not particularly accepting to musicians deciding they want to be actors. But the music industry seems very accepting of <laughs> actors that decide they want to make an album or something like that. It's pretty... <laughs> the thing is, when you're an actor, you can make an album and it's not that expensive. You know, <laughs> no. like, if yeah. I can make an album, someone with tens of millions of dollars can easily get the studio time. And, <laughs> yeah. and yeah. I don't know how successful that's ever been. I know that Simon is a big fan of Robert Mitchum's Calypso album. Um, Surprises me not at all. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's not, yeah, it, it's, it's so rare for it to work either way. Yes. There's Correct. been some, there's been some great performances by yeah. musicians. For sure. There's definitely been more great performances by musicians as actors than actors as musicians, I would say. I think that's a very safe assessment. Yeah. Um, I, I think that that, yeah. But it, it also goes to show how, on a di- on another level, how accepting, I don't know if accepting is the right word, but how how many uh, music artists come over to, and decide that they do want to try to compose. It seems to be more of a thing now. Um, I think that Trent obviously has, has warmed the, the waters for that a little bit. And I also think that if you're... Uh, if you're Tom York or Johnny Greenwood or whoever, and you start to say to yourself, I mean, how long am I going to be in Radiohead? How long do I want to be doing this for? Um, it's another musical outlet that allows you to sort of um, scratch that itch and quite frankly, continue to be relevant while not having to tour. <laughs> yeah, not having to tour is probably yeah. a big thing as you get into your 50s. I'm sure that becomes, yeah. 
I mean, for some artists, it, I mean, it doesn't matter. Like some, some guys just never stop touring. Um, like Dylan never stops touring and Neil Young <laughs> never stops touring. And like yeah. Willie Nelson's always playing shows, I'm sure. And like a lot of these guys who are like, in these guys feel like they might die if they don't. They, yeah, I mean, they probably <laughs> will. <laughs> so they need a hobby, right? I know that well, like, Clint Eastwood has said that he's like, I keep making movies because I'm yeah. afraid that if I stop, I'm going to keel over, and and there might be some legitimacy to that. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, it's a, a lot of a lot of artists have said, you know, and a lot of people just in general, which is that um, as you get older, it's keeping this going. It's it's keeping yourself inspired. It's keeping your brain going and and the second that you just sort of start vegging out on a couch watching television you know it's, it's not so great it's not great for the brain but um but this was i mean honestly this album um i'm 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 so thankful that you that you were willing to come on and talk about it um and my pleasure i i, I really think that it, it's the, these episodes that i've done i've done a couple of them now um, I did a, a, a Smashing Pumpkins a- a episode. I did, a, as I mentioned, a Moby episode <laughs> doing this episode. I mean, obviously, all very different bands, all very different uh, artists has yeah. really sort of given me a new appreciation for, uh, you know, what goes into them. I think that, and I, I, I know you feel this way too, that um, it's it's for the best that people out in the world don't know how hard it is to make these things because it, it's it's ultimately it'll hurt the experience of enjoying it, right? Like they should enjoy the purity of going to see a movie or watching a television show or listening to an album. Um, but if you do the, the the research and you do the due diligence to kind of dig into them, you, you realize what a labor of love or maybe not even love, just the laborious quality and how, mm. um, how special they are. You're making music. You understand how difficult it is to do these things. Um, so when you listen to an album like this, it must, you must find yourself going like, Jesus Christ, like I can't even imagine the undertaking of something like this. For sure. I mean, with, with this album, with, with Downward Spiral as well, like, I don't, it's, it's hard to understand where they count, where, where he comes up with the, um, the inspiration to put some of this stuff together. I mean, it, it is, there's so much work that goes into those albums, like so mm-hmm. much work. Um, and it's one thing to like multi-track a bunch of guitars on top of each other with, with, with drums and, and sing, but there's, there's levels upon levels. Like there's all these layers that, that build this up, but these are also just, these are difficult songs. They are not verse, chorus, verse songs. They're not just, there's not a lot of repetition on them. There's yeah. a lot of movement and like some, some great playing on these records too. I think like musically it's a it's a super interesting album that you're right does not sound like anything other than parts of other Nine Inch Nails albums at sometimes mm-hmm. and and then just like a, a whole different sound that no one else really picked up on it and they didn't really carry through I don't think until some of the scores they, that he started working on that's the See, only also- time we start to hear some of this stuff again the other the other the, the last thing I wanted to talk about real quick is is the idea of you know, if, if a band or an artist can can stick around long enough and stay relevant long enough, they're going to hit some sort of a moment where they say, 
no, 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 fuck you. Like I'm, I've, I've decided I'm going to deconstruct the thing that you love. Yeah. If it's, if it's uh, Radiohead doing Kid A, if it's whoever. Like there's always the like quote unquote difficult album, the album where they just push back on all the preconceived notions of 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 their, um, of their fame, of their success, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it does feel like you have those fans that love an artist or an, or a band, and that they hone in on the hard album. Like they hone in on the one that's like that that that's challenging, that's keeping mm-hmm. them at arm's length. And I think that this is that album for Nine Inch Nails for sure, and and perhaps the the one atop the the mountain of difficult, challenging albums from a successful band or artist. Um, and I, I I really do respect fans that want to work for it. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? That that yeah. want to love the thing that that artist is saying. Okay. But it's this is going to be hard to love, and this is going to be a challenge. And I love fans that are up to that. Do you yeah. do you sort of know what I'm getting at? I've definitely I've had some albums where it's taken me a lot of listens to love an album, and maybe I you you know you hear something that's carrying you through that process because there's some albums you just listen to and you're like no forget it I don't want to mm-hmm. you can figure out after a minute that you don't want to listen to it, um, but there's some that you have to live with for a bit and you have to let it get like ingrained into you till you hear like, okay, why did this artist make this, make, make these choices? Why, why does this exist the way it does? And that, that's the same with film as well. Um, or any sort of visual art, um, as well. Like I think this album is, is sort of like that. Um, I, you know, I've listened to it a lot and I still think it's, more i don't know if it's a perfect statement like i don't think it has that uh element where eventually i would just learn to love the whole thing and accept it because I, I don't think it's i don't think it's there i don't i think there's too many parts of this album that he may never he may not want to admit to it but we're definitely commercially minded there are some sure. songs on this album that sound like they were recorded for the radio which yeah. is unlike anything uh, up to this album, anything that really Nine Inch Nails was about. Um, right. You know, like but we're also, wanna, this is in the shadow of the enormous success of, of Downward Spiral, right? Yeah, so. I mean, but they won a Grammy for for Wish from, from Broken. Um, and I, I did read, like, there's a quote where he said, like, I think this is the first time a Grammy has gone to a song that says the word fist fuck in it. Um, which, when I was probably told, the first time no yeah. I had no idea what a fist fuck was when I was 12 years old, but you know, at that age, you're just kind of happy to be listening to music that says the F word. You know, it felt dangerous. I had no idea what that meant. It probably took a few years to wrap my head around that little nugget. Amazing. But, uh, yeah. I mean, I think it's, I, I think it's, you know, as, as I said earlier, I think it's a messy masterpiece I, and I, I'm, I'm always a fan of, I am a person that, that gravitates towards that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I, I like, um, you know, there there are several movies that I love that people are just like, I don't fucking get it, um, as there are for you too, I'm sure, mm-hmm. uh, and albums like that too. Um, and, and I think that this album, I think what I what I'm most, I mean, I, I mentioned it. It's mentioned in that in that Stereo Gun review a little bit too, of just sort of the immersion of it, the swing of it. I love a big swing. I love yeah. an attempt at you know a big double album. Um, 
that I imagine for those fans must have been like this salivating at the opportunity and then <laughs> and found themselves listening to something very that was confused. deeply challenging and yeah. very hard. Um, you know, I think it's, I, I think it's, I think it's, you know, a, a noble effort. And I, and I, and I really do. Um, I'm sure I will listen to it again over the years. Um, it feels like an important album and it feels like in a year of, you know, Britney Spears and, corn and red hot chili peppers and i mean yeah, that was all a big sorts album, of stuff. Yeah. yeah i mean california Cage was an enormous album that's another band that feels like yeah but um it, it just it, it's it's weird and it's great and it's wonderful that this album came out amongst all of that um and you know that a major label put a full-throated effort behind uh, promoting it and, mm-hmm. and all that i think it's really i think it's really incredible um and i and i think too you know what I like about being able to talk about this album and albums like it are being able to see a turning point in a band and being like, you can see a definite moment where it all changes for Trent. Um, and yeah. I think that's really fascinating in and of itself, but thank you so much for, for talking about this album, yeah, thank um, you. for coming on here. I want everyone again, I'm mentioning uh, letters end, which is Scott's uh, music project. Let's, let's call it that. Yeah. Um, it is. Uh, it's on all your streaming sites. It's also on Bandcamp. Please support this amazing uh, music. Um, and uh, thanks again for being here. Thank you, Phil. So much fun. One last thing. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, speaking of subscribing, check out our Patreon on all the best films of 1989. Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Fabulous Baker Boys, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, Field of Dreams, Major League, and many, many more. We are covering all the best films of 1989 with amazing guests like Joanna Robinson, Liz Hanna, Hunter Covington, Brian Cogman, David Iserson, and many, many more. All your favorite guests from our 1999 podcast are coming on to the 1989 Patreon. You can sign up for it at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. For only $5, you get access to all of these awesome episodes. And for a few bucks more, you get video of our 1999 episodes as well. Plus, there are other very cool tiers too, where you can even be a guest on our podcast. Also, please check out our Reddit as well at reddit.com backslash podcast like it's. We're also on Twitter at podcast like it's. We're also on Instagram at podcast like it's. Thank you to Ernie and Will for producing our episode, Sullivan for our social media, Yonkatas for our artwork and theme songs. And most of all, thank you all for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.